Let's open our Bibles tonight to Psalms chapter number 137. Uh, Psalms chapter 137, and uh, we'll read the entirety of this psalm tonight, and uh, I trust that God will use this message in your heart. This is this has always been, I, I don't know if I can say one of my favorite psalms. It's a sorrowful message that's found within this psalm, and, and it's tragic. But certainly it has always been one that has captivated me. It has always been one that has captured my attention. About half the book of Psalms was penned by David and about half by other folks. And this is part of that half that was penned by other folks. This was not penned by David. It was rather penned by some anonymous Israelite, uh, some anonymous uh, uh, dweller of the tribe of Judah uh, after their captivity and are in the midst of their captivity into Babylon. And uh, that holds the key, I think, to understanding a lot of what's going on in this particular passage of Scripture. Psalms 137, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. The Word of God says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom. In the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this privileged opportunity to be in your house. And I pray that you'd take your word. Lord, it's your sword. It's your spirit's sword. And I pray that he would wield it this evening effectively, efficiently, Lord, that he'd begin in me, and Lord, that he would take his inspired word, and Father, that he would reveal to us the things in our hearts and lives that need to be corrected and addressed, Lord, places, deficits in our life, areas where we must be more devoted to thee, and I pray that in all things, Lord, we'd be molded more into the image of Christ and drawn closer unto thee. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's precious and holy name, amen. The 137th Psalm, as we said, was written by an anonymous Israelite or dweller of the southern kingdom uh, of Judah uh, after they had been taken captive uh, by the Babylonians. To understand a little bit and give you a little information about the history of the nation of Israel surrounding this time, in about 721 B.C., the northern ten tribes of Israel were taken captive by the Assyrians. And uh, the Assyrians, of course, one of their capital cities was Nineveh, uh, the city that Jonah preached unto. The Assyrians were a bloodthirsty and vicious people. Uh, they were uh, very strong, had great military prowess. And because of the greater sin of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, God permitted for that northern kingdom to be taken captive by the Assyrians and was really utterly annihilated. Now, God still has a record. God knows every tribe. God knows every member of every tribe. Amen. And one of these days, He's going to gather them uh, the same way that He will gather those of the southern kingdom of Judah. You say, how could God do that? Well, if God could resurrect a body 
that's been that's been burned or that's been incinerated or a body that that's that's been through something like an explosion. If if God would have no trouble being able to raise that body and glorify it and put it together whole, then I don't think God's going to have any problem gathering His people uh, from the four winds. Amen. And so that's exactly and precisely what God is going to do. But that took place in 721 B.C. under Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian ruler. Well, about 136 years later, uh, the siege upon Jerusalem, which took place in three parts, there were three different sections to the uh, to the destruction of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. And the siege on Jerusalem in 585 sort of brought to completion the Babylonians conquering of the kingdom of Judah. Uh, the city walls were torn down and burnt. The temple was burnt. It was pillaged. Uh, all of the people except just the poorest and, and meanest of the uh, of the adherents, or uh, excuse me, the dwellers, the uh, citizens were, were taken away captive into the land of Babylon. Because Judah's sin was not as as uh, dark and was not as thorough as the uh, northern kingdom's sin, uh, God gave promise to them that a faithful remnant would be brought back into the land. And, of course, that did take place 70 years later under Cyrus, uh, king of the Persians. He permitted for the Israelites uh, that remained or the Hebrews that remained to go back and resettle uh, their native land. But in the interval, the scene that we have before us takes place. It would seem as though uh, the uh, the captives from the land of Judah being marched on a prisoner's march all the way to the land of Babylon, that they broke down in sorrow, in, in angst over their condition and their situation, and that one of them took Holy Ghost pen in hand and pinned down these sorrowful, uh, these miserable, these touching and tormenting words. You know, what we really have here is a voice out of captivity. And it's at the moment when it has come home to them just exactly where sin has taken them. I want, if I can tonight, to give you a, a very brief message. Uh, this evening I told my wife, I said, I've been preaching real long lately. And she said, I know. And I said, well, I can't help it. It's just a subject matter of what we're dealing with. She said, I know. And I said, why? Well, I need to try to be sweet at the church and preach real short to him. She said, I know. And I don't know if it'll happen. I don't know that I've ever seen a 20-minute sermon. But but I'm, by the Lord's help, I want to give you a short message tonight. And, and I, I want to preach to you on this thought, lessons from captivity. You know, there were things, and this isn't my message, but just as a short introduction, there were things that the prodigal learned in the far country that he would have never learned at daddy's house. There were things that he came to apprehend and comprehend that through his journey of sin, and I, I'm not advocating for a journey of sin. In fact, I'm preaching against taking that journey. But I'm saying there were things that he learned and learned well by experience. Uh, there were lessons that he brought home when he came back from the far country. In the same way, I think in this sad, heartbreaking psalm, we have some things that they had learned about sin. I was uh, desiring to go to a very succinct passage of Scripture that would detail to you how that it was the sin of the uh, kingdom of Judah that had brought them to this place. Uh, but the reality is this. You go all the way through the book of, of Isaiah and all the way through the book of, 
Jeremiah and all the way through the book of Ezekiel and through a plethora of the rest of the minor prophets, you'll find over and over and over again, it's really a rallying cry. It's, it's just a, over and over again, God warning uh, Israel that if they didn't repent of their sins, there was going to be punishment. And that punishment took uh, form in the Assyrians for the northern kingdom, but in the Babylonians for the southern. And I think that we can say with scriptural authority and with no amount of, of, of debate, uh, that they're where they're at in this 137th Psalm because of their sin as a nation. Uh, the Bible records for us Daniel praying and repenting on behalf of the nation. Daniel hadn't done anything wrong, but he knew that Israel had sinned and him repenting on behalf of the nation. They were here at this moment. Sin had brought them here. And in that moment of brokenness, there are certain things they reveal that they had learned through that experience. Now, how many of you know this is true, that experience is the best teacher but that tuition's mighty expensive. It's far better if we can learn it by observation and learn it by exposition instead of by experience. And I hope we can do that tonight. Well, I noticed three things that they had learned, and I'm going to give you these and then we'll go eat some. Me and Mom had a discussion about what they are. Uh, she said something about a plethora of delectable dainties or something. I just assumed she was speaking in tongues and rebuked her. But... Uh, uh, the, it sounds like donuts and cake is what we're having. Amen. So I got as much incentive as you do to get out of here on time. So let, let's look at these three thoughts. Let me say number one tonight. They had learned in captivity. They had learned tasting the dregs out of the bottom of sin's cup. They had learned to taste sin sorrowfully. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, this whole psalm is a psalm that is broken. It is a broken person weeping broken tears over their broken condition. Notice what it says in verse number 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. This is a haunting phrase. Verse 4. It's pregnant with meaning. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Can I tell you something? The Bible does tell us that sin indeed has pleasure for a season. But they had learned in these moments that at the end it, it stingeth like an adder. At the end it's miserable. At the end it's sorrowful. I'd say it this. They had learned that there's no joy in sin's captivity. They had learned that at the end you'll regret the path that you're walking. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, well, preacher, I already know this is true. I've sat in churches. I know, I know that you know it's true about everybody else. I'm asking if you know it's true about you. Because we have a funny way of believing that about everybody else's sin, but not believing that about our own. And point in fact, that's exactly what Israel had done. I, I'm not going to take the time to do it, but we could examine the little book of Jonah and look at exactly what Jonah's motives were in, in fleeing from God. People have said Jonah was scared of death. Well, that don't make no sense to me. A man that's scared of death, don't ask people to throw him off of a boat in the middle of a storm. And people have said, well, you know, Jonah j just, uh, he, he was afraid the Ninevites uh, were going were gonna to kill him or were going to torture him when he got there. That's not what he said. Whenever they repented, he told God, he said, this was my saying when I was in my own country. Uh, he believed with all of his heart that revival was coming to Nineveh. So why was it that Jonah... 
was so terrified of going to Nineveh because he understood how rebellious the children of Israel were and he understood that Assyria being the big dog on the block that God was probably going to use them to judge Israel if God didn't have to judge Assyria first. And the theme of Jonah's lament is, Lord, how could you revive them and not revive Israel? How could you do this for them and not do this for the people? That's the apple of your eye. In other words, Jonah's message was the mercy of God for me, but not for thee. And he could easily see how their sin should lead down that path, but he could have never imagined that his sin would leave him soured up and shriveled up underneath that shriveled up Gordon, angry at God and that Old Testament prophetic book ending with a question that he did not want to answer in his misery. Say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying we have a way of seeing that everybody else's sin is going to lead to sorrow, but somehow convincing ourselves that we're going to get away with it, that our sin will not lead to sorrow, that it's all going to turn out fine for us. But I notice in this passage a few thoughts about this uh, tasting of sin sorrowfully. They had learned that sin uh, was not a pleasant thing. I, and I notice three things sort of they reveal. Look what it says in verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We wept when we remembered Zion. We wept. When we when uh, we remember Zion, you know what I find interesting about this. I'm just I'm just going to preach a little bit here. I, I, you know what I find interesting. The whole reason God sent them into Babylon was because of their infatuation with Babylon. Uh, we have this idea sometimes that here's the children of Israel up in the land of Judah, and they're just doing everything like they ought to, and they don't want nothing to do with the world. But if you actually look at the context, if you look at the narrative, they had become enamored and infatuated with Babylon. Uh, they had yielded to and embraced Baal worship. And God essentially says, listen, if you want paganism, if you want idol- uh, idolatry, if you want uh, Baal worship, I'll send you to a place where they got so much Baal worship, you won't be able to avoid. He says, you want idolatry, I'll send you to the very Mecca, to the very heartbeat, to the very fertile crescent of what idolatry is. They had been clamoring for Babylon, but now they're weeping when they remember Zion. Isn't that just like us? To think we need something, become so obsessed with it, chase after it, and when the dog finally catches the car, we finally realize, what in the world are we going to do with a bumper? (laughs) We didn't want that in the first place. I've been watching this stuff with the impeachment And that's exactly what you're seeing on there. The dogs have caught the car, and now nobody knows what to do, you know? Uh, they, they, they got this thing rolling and, and got it started, and now it's started, and that whole thing, it's just, it's like a, it's like a downhill train, it's just run away, and they don't know what to do about any of it. They, you see, the children of Israel, they had clamored for Babylon. God says, you want Babylon, I'll give you Babylon. I'll give you so much Babylon, you'll never want anything to do with Babylon ever again. And so they they wept when they remembered Zion. And notice what it says, verse number 2. This is very significant. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. In other words, the instruments of their praise and joy, they set to the side. And they said, we're done with a life of joy. Can I say this, that sin torments the happy. It, 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 it draws, almost like poison from a wound, but it draws joy from the life of a of a believer. There's no one in the world more unhappy. I'm talking about the most rotten, the most wretched, the most reprobate sinner walking around, hard as dark as they come, as black as the charred walls of hell, has more joy than a child of God that's living in sin. Sin torments the happy. Not only that, look at verse 3. 
Bible says, for they, they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Now, the, the, the scene is easy to imagine, is it not? These big, brutish Babylonian soldiers uh, that are mocking and taunting and demanding of these poor uh, bedraggled captives that they sing one of those Jewish songs, sing one of those uh, Israelite songs. We've heard about your temple choir. Uh, We've heard about the worship there in Jerusalem. So go ahead. We want to hear it. Entertain us and sing us a song of Zion. What they didn't understand is that the songs of Zion were different than, than the Babylonian worship songs. The songs of Zion were holy, inspired word of God. They were not merely the rantings and expressions and, and sort of uh, primal uh, manifestations of carnality and, and fleshly idolatry. They were holy things. And for the children of Israel, when they sang the songs of Zion, they sang them to worship God in the presence of God. They were some of the most holy things, most holy aspects of their culture. It was a serious thing. And now these soldiers are demanding that they perform these songs as though it's a cheap parlor trick. Reminds me of this, that sin, not only does it torment the happy, it trivializes the holy. Sin will take everything sacred, everything holy, everything that ought to be treated as hallowed and revered, and will take it and roll it around in the mud and make it cheap and make it meaningless. Listen, we're we're not a place that stands on formality, nor do I believe that God's people are called to stand on some false sense of uh, formality, some starch-shirted form of worship. But I would say this, that there ought to be something holy about the house of God. There ought to be something holy about it. And when we come to the house of God, we ought to recognize that we're, we're coming here to worship. And I know God can meet with us anywhere, but, but can I remind you, there's folks who say, well, God can meet with you anywhere. Well, that's true, but if that's the whole side of the truth, if that's all the truth, then how come Christ loved the church and gave himself for it? Hey, listen, I understand God is not bound with inside four walls, but I recognize this, his people meet with inside four walls. And the local body is something that Christ loved and gave himself for. And it's meaningful. It's meaningful. Uh, I think there's something wrong when we try to turn the house of God into merely an instrument of entertainment. Again, I don't think it's wrong to enjoy ourselves in the house of God. And, and I'm sort of the type, I, I thumb my nose at a, at a, source, a sort of false sense of formality. But we do need to recognize, listen, there are some things that are holy. There's some things that are holy, man. And they need to stay holy. They need to be holy. And we need to have a hallowed, reverential spirit and attitude. Let me tell you something. Sin doesn't care about your walk with God. In fact, sin, if it can do what it wants to, wants to destroy and cheapen your walk with God. Hey, listen, the devil can't make an unbeliever or a lost person out of you. I guess I should say it that way. The devil can't make a lost person out of you, but he can make a hypocrite out of you. And so he'll try to trivialize trivialize those elements of our life and cheapen them and make them just, this is what they wanted. Take those holy songs and entertain us with them. Satisfy our flesh with them. Uh, Pique our curiosity with them. Sin trivializes the holy. It'll take everything uh, precious about your walk with God and make it empty and dead and a facade and nothing more than routine. It trivializes the holy. But then look at verse 4. We see the reply back. And they say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? 
you can imagine the soldiers laughing, mocking them as they, with heartbreak in their voice, try to communicate just what a holy thing the songs of Zion were. You can hear the cackles of wicked laughter. It's a reminder to me that, listen to this, sin torments the happy. It trivializes the holy. But sin also taunts the hopeless. You know what sin will do? It will break you down and break you to pieces and then sit back and laugh at you once your life is a mess. Where did their sin leave them? Now, you could have gone backwards in Israel's history. You could have gone to Dan or to Bethel and seen the golden calves that Jeroboam had set up. You could have gone to the temples of worship that Jezebel had built as places of honor and of commemoration and worship of Baal. And it would look like they were having a good time. You would have heard a lot of laughter. You would have heard a lot of noise. You would have heard of a lot of revelry. See, that was the beginning of sin. But here by the rivers of Babylon, where we see where it's took them, it's nothing but weeping taking place. They had learned to taste sin sorrowfully. Let me say number two, not only had they learned to taste sin sorrowfully, I would say this, that evidently from this passage, they had learned to take sin seriously. So what do you mean, preacher? It wasn't a game anymore. Not while they're sitting beside this river weeping. Uh, separated from their children, separated from their spouses, separated from their homeland, not knowing what lays out before them, they'd learn that sin is a serious thing. Can I tell you something I've observed about, and I believe this is true about American culture, it's probably universally true about culture, uh, but I ain't a part of, the, uh, of other, uh, so I can only speak to American culture. But I've learned this, that the first step to acceptance in a society is to get folks to laugh at a given sin before it is ever normalized, before it is ever glorified, before it is ever legalized or demanded, it's laughed at. The seriousness of sin is washed away from it. And that is the first step in a people's acceptance of sin as a way of society. Can I tell you that the first thing that comes back when sin's reality hits home the first thing that a people group adopts back or embraces back when the punishment and when the consequences of sin become a reality is taking sin seriously. They had, they had learned this thing of sin was no laughing matter and that they may have laid, made light of it back in the land of Judah, but now they realize that God was not bluffing them when He warned them of the dangers of sin. I, I notice a few things. Verse 5 Reminds me of sin's destruction. He says, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. Now, here in a few moments, I'm going to say a word about this. It's interesting that the psalmist here has a fear of forgetting Jerusalem. What does he mean when he says, if I forget Jerusalem? Well, I don't believe he's saying that he'll no longer be able to remember Jerusalem as a place. Uh, certainly anyone pinning this down would have been old enough to have lived years around the city of Jerusalem or in the land of Israel and to be well acquainted uh, with, with its place and with its existence. So what does it mean when he says, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem? He's saying, hold it in his heart as a place of love, adoration, and listen carefully for the, for the Israelite, as a place of hope. Hope. God had put his name in Zion. God had given promise after promise uh, through the prophet Jeremiah that 
though they would go into captivity, God would bring them back again into the land of Judah. And so for them, Jerusalem was the beacon of their hope. And what he's saying here is, God help me to never get comfortable in sin and not expect for God to bring me back home. He says, when that happens, when I grow comfortable with being in sin, he said, that'd be worse for me than if my right hand forgot her cunning. The right hand for most people, except for you strange people out there. Yeah. <laughs> the right hand for most people is the dominant hand. My daddy's left-handed. They, uh, that's what's wrong with him. But they... Uh, I don't know if they beat him too much or didn't beat him enough when he was little. But they, uh, but, but the, the right hand is typically the dominant hand. And cunning means wisdom or dexterity or ability. And so really what's being said here is it'd be better for me to lose the capability, the function, the workability, the usability of my dominant hand than it would be for me to forget Jerusalem, for me to grow comfortable in sin. Now, what that would basically do is debilitate a man. It would destroy his ability, particularly in that day when men, uh, most of them, earned their living with what they could do with their hands, what they could build and what they could create. It would essentially sentence him to a life of poverty and of desolation. And it's a reminder that sin has the ability to rob us of all strength, to rob us of all wisdom, to rob us of all capability, I've been praying for Brother Jack Thomas, and I ain't going to say a lot about it because the sermon's not about it, but Brother Jack's been having some trouble uh, with his, he's, he's a lefty, like some of y'all out there, and uh, his, he's been having trouble with his left arm. They've had done some nerve damage, and it's been a debilitating thing for him. I mean, he's not only the pain he's experienced, but not being able to use that left hand it has been, and it's been one of my great sorrows to watch him go through this trial. We've been praying heavily for him because it would be such a devastating thing to lose the function of that dominant hand. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. Listen, you know what will happen? You play with sin, it will leave you helpless. It will destroy you. Not only that, look at verse 6. He says, if I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem... Above my chief joy. You know, that's fascinating to me. What the psalmist is really praying for is, Lord, I never want to become so enamored with anything that it keeps me from going back to Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying, I don't want to fall in love with anything here in Babylon so much that if I could go back to Jerusalem, I forget about Jerusalem and I won't go back. The reason that's fascinating is because about 70 years later, there would be a whole generation of Jews that would do that very thing. Cyrus would permit the Jews to go back and repatriate the land, but only a paltry showing of them actually did. The vast majority of the Jews stayed in Babylon. Uh, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah describes the, the obsession that they had gained. It's interesting because when they went, when they went to Babylon, uh, they they forfeited paganism and in its place took materialism. And they had become so enamored with the life that they had in Babylon and with the commercial uh, potential and opportunities that lay before them that when they had an opportunity to go back to Jerusalem, there was a great many of them said, no, thank you. I got businesses here. I got family here. I'm making a good living here. I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. In fact, there was a whole generation that did 
prefer their chief joy above Jerusalem. It reminds me of sin's distraction. Sin's distraction. You know what's so dangerous about sin? It's not that first sin. It's that last sin. And every sin that takes place in between that first one and that last one. I, the, if you could ever commit one sin and walk away from it, then maybe we could we could take sin lightly, even though even that one sin would be enough to break the heart of God. But you could at least uh, you could at least see, well, you know, I'll commit this sin and I'll turn out. But that's never how sin goes. It always keeps you longer than you want to stay. It always costs you more than you want to pay. It always takes a greater hold in your life than you ever intended it to. You know, the prodigal's journey to the far country started with one step down his daddy's driveway. Just one step, man. That first step. Imagine if when after he took that first step, he had stopped, fell on his knees, asked God for forgiveness, repented, turned back to his daddy and ran home. The funny thing about it, that first step is usually followed by a second one and a third and a fourth and a myriad of steps until it finally brings you to a place of brokenness. I hate to tell you this, but this is the, the sheer fact of it. Some folks don't never come back out of sin. I'm not talking about losing their salvation. If they're saved by the grace of God, then they're just that. They're saved by the grace of God, not by their works. I understand. I'm not talking about losing your... I'm saying some folks don't ever make it out of sin. That's why you shouldn't play with sin. Because some folks don't ever make it back out of sin. Elimelech took his wife Naomi and went down into the land of Moab for a short journey, for a sojourn, for a vacation. And there him and his son Malon and his son Chilion were buried. Naomi came back, but there were three graves in Moab that didn't belong there. You know why? Because some people never make it back. It's a serious thing. They learned about sin's distraction. They learned, verse number 7, about sin's desertion. The psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. Now, this is fascinating to me. The children of Edom, of course, are the descendants of Esau. Uh, and the children of Edom were literally, they were relatives of the children of, of, of Israel and the children of Judah. You would imagine that they would have had a natural affection and affinity for their blood kin. But in fact, the book of Obadiah makes clear to us that whenever the, the Babylonians uh, destroyed Jerusalem, laid siege to it, uh, that the Edomites did everything they could to assist and aid the Babylonians in capturing the children of Judah. In fact, the book of Obadiah records for us occasions when uh, the children of Israel would flee and they'd be getting ready to, to, to make a way, to, to get away, to escape the captivity of the Babylonians and the Edomites would find them and catch them in the way and take them back to the Babylonians or they'd kill them where they found them. There was deep, bitter blood between these two peoples because of the history of Jacob and Esau. Esau learned to forgive Jacob, but his children never learned to forgive the children of Jacob. And so in that day, the people that should have been brothers, the people that should have loved them, the people that should have helped them, the people that should have fought for them and protected them said, raise it, raise it to the ground, burn it and leave nothing else. You know, it's a reminder of how sin is in the day of calamity. It's a reminder of sin's desertion. Uh, Lester Olaf used to preach a sermon on the mule walked on. The mule that Absalom rode. When Absalom got his head caught up in that oak tree, that mule represents, it just, it just walked on. Didn't give one thought to the peril that Absalom was, it just walked on. 
And in the same respect, listen, in your darkest moments, that sinful companion, that sinful pleasure, that sinful activity, that thing that has allured you away, will step back and laugh at you and mock your calamity. It teaches us about sin's desertion. So they had learned to take sin seriously. And then I want to give you this one final one. I don't even have, have points under my points, under my points, under my points. It's just one thought. I'm going to give it to you and be done. They had learned to taste sin sorrowfully. They had learned to take sin seriously. But verse number 8, look what it says. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. And this is strong language. He says, happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. I wrote this down. The third lesson they learned is they had learned to tame sin speedily. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, this is strong language here in verses 8 and 9. The, the psalmist is essentially exalting himself against and rejoicing in the thought of the destruction of Babylon. Now that, of course, did take place. You can read about it in Daniel chapter number 5, how the Medo-Persians, they diverted the Euphrates uh, River and went under the walls and sacked Babylon there when uh, 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 Belshazzar was upon the, the throne as a vassal of his granddaddy. And, and you know, you can read all about that. Uh, but here in this moment, that was a long ways away. But even now, the psalmist is, is looking forward in anticipation to the day when God will destroy his enemies. That's not what's interesting to me, though. Look at verse 9. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. I, I'll just be honest with you. That's, that's kind of hard for me to read. I've got little ones. I've got a little boy, 18, 19 months, something. Is he 18 years old yet? 20 months? I don't, we're still in that month thing. So if you if you ask me how old he is, I say ask her. Amen? Once it's just one digit, I can handle that. So here like by April, I'll say, he's two. But right now, when I got to do all this math, I'm just, I'm sorry, it's too much work. I got too many other things going on. But, I, you know, I've got little ones. And the idea that the Holy Ghost could put in the heart of a man to pin down, happy shall he be. Take and dasheth thy little ones. I believe those Babylonians were born in innocence, just like you and I are. Dasheth thy little ones against the stones. And yet that's precisely what the Holy Ghost did. What is he trying to communicate to us? Well, you know why I think the psalmist rejoiced in this? I don't think he rejoiced in it because he was sadistic or he hated children or, or wanted to see torment come to them. But he had learned this one simple truth. Little Babylonians grow up to be big Babylonians. So he was saying this, be far better if we could destroy them when they're little before they can do damage to us when they're bigger. <laughs> now, they had learned this concerning their enemies, but can I say there is a deep spiritual truth here. Sin is a lot easier to deal with when it's little than to let it go till it gets big. Old timers used to say this, that you ought to keep short accounts with God. What they were saying was, when you've sinned and messed up, don't wait until you're, uh, you're in a bind and messed up and broken and the chastening of God pouring on you. Instead, in that moment, when you realize you've sinned, fall to your knees then. Ask God's forgiveness. Repent of it. Cleanse it out of your heart and out of your life. 
They had learned this truth the hard way and they had learned it effectively so much so that they could look at those little children with cherubic faces and cute manners and say, I wish somebody would take that child and dash it against a stone because one day it will grow up and it will persecute my children. One day it will grow up and it will persecute my grandchildren. Hey, listen, that's a kind of hatred and spite and soberness that we need to have over sin. The world may laugh at sin. The world may make light over sin. The world may say, hey, it's no big deal. But we as God's people ought to look at it and say, it may not be a big deal of the world, but it can grow up and bust up my marriage. It can grow up and shipwreck my faith. It can grow up and destroy my kids. And it's a serious thing that sin is. The devil, if he can get you to do nothing else, he wants to get you to take lightly your own sin. We have a way of taking everyone else's seriously and taking ours lightly. Can I tell you something? You better learn to tame that sin speedily, to deal with it immediately. Because if you don't, guess what? It'll grow. It'll gain momentum. It'll gain a grip and a foothold in your life. And you can try to brush it off as a small thing. But sooner or later, you'll find yourself by the rivers weeping. They had learned these truths. Painful truths. Expensive truths. But powerful truths that you and I need to recognize in our lives. We need to learn to taste sin sorrowfully. In other words, to, to see sin as a bitter thing. As an ugly thing. They learned to take sin seriously. That it's a destructive thing. That it'll wreck our lives. And they learned to tame sin speedily. They learned to deal with it immediately. Not to wait until it grew and grew and grew. But instead to deal with it the moment. That the Holy Ghost prompts you of it. Let's bow together this evening. As musician comes to play. The altar's open. If the Holy Ghost has spoken to your heart about something. I'd like for you to obey Him. Just mind Him. He knows what's best. Uh, He wouldn't deal with you for no reason. And if he's dealt with your heart, I, I hope you'll come tonight. Father, bless this invitation. May it uplift the Lord Jesus. And may it draw us closer unto thee. We ask it in Christ's name.